This podcast is sponsored by Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. For more than 45 years, the writers, editors, and growing experts at Acres USA have cultivated information about modern farming practices that do not rely on toxic pesticides and toxic herbicides. We share that information through our monthly magazine, our online bookstore, events around the country, and through online articles and podcasts like this. If you're a new farmer or have been farming for a lifetime, you know there's always more to learn. New research into soil life, gut health, and nutrient and mineral applications are changing the way we look at farm management, and the most important part, the future of our soil. At Acres USA, we are committed to finding the experts to teach you these methods and practices. Learn more at www.acresusa.com or by calling 1-800-355-5313. Folks outside the U.S. and Canada can call us at 970-392-4464. If your business would like to advertise or sponsor the Tractor Time podcast, spots are available. Contact us today to find out more, and thank you for listening to Tractor Time. We are in a revolution, but it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Good day and welcome to our 15th episode of Tractor Time Podcast brought to you by Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. My name is Ryan Slaybaugh and we're fired up to bring you another hour of conversation about ecology, agriculture, uh, saving the world. Uh, we're talking about all sorts of stuff this at this hour and we're excited about it. Uh, we have two guests on our show today. One is Mary Batches and I have the pleasure of working every day with Mary. She's our project manager and recently wrapped up a survey of young farmers around the world. Uh, she spoke with a lot of them and, and discovered, uh, tried to discover uh, their outlook on the world and uh, what they saw their role in the world and how uh, and why we need to support them. Uh, speaking generally, uh, they want the same things most of us want, safety, security, family, healthy environment. Uh, they see the same obstacles very clearly, climate change, technology disruptors, uh, an economy that favors the big, devouring the small. Uh, we'll get all into that later. Um, and she'll go into some more detail uh, in this hour, uh, but there's hope too. Uh, it's not just all challenges and obstacles, uh, and it, that hope comes in the form of our second guest, Douglas DeCandia, a young farmer from New York. He grows food using natural methods. He does so with an even greater purpose to serve those who are forgotten by our food system, who are systematically discriminated against because of who they are, where they are from, or where they live. Uh, his farm, and he uses quotation marks around that, so I'll ask him about that later, uh, serves youth and adults who are incarcerated, students at a school for the deaf, and young adults who are part of the residential treatment program in his area. Uh, he also supports a number of food growing products uh, and processes and food banks. And when we talked to him today, he was actually wandering around the gardens at the school for the deaf where he has built gardens and is growing food for them. Uh, we're going to get started with Mary Batches today first. I'm so happy to have both of you on the show today. Uh, Mary, could you walk us through the survey of young farmers you were uh, recently managing and uh, uh, share a few of your discoveries? Sure thing. Um... I'm in Austin, Texas, and uh, I work for Acres, as Ryan said, and at the 2017 conference last year, uh, Mark Shepard talked about, before one of the sessions, how important the beginner young farmer is to uh, agriculture, eco-ag in the United States, and that got us, what is it that 
acres can do to help these young beginner farmers realize their dream and um, how can we help them do that. So that's what got this project started. I emailed and called over a hundred folks, um, organizations, and just some farmers that I had met at the conference and asked if they would be willing participate in an online survey and phone surveys and the response was overwhelming. Um, it was fantastic that so many people wanted to share their stories and be so honest about what they need and what they're looking for and how important their work is to them, whether they get um, recognition for it or they get paid a lot wasn't important to them. It was uh, a lifestyle and contributing to society and um, they were really thrilled that we wanted to know what they thought. And uh, we just appreciate that so much. So what we're hoping to get out of this is to help these young beginning farmers um, have access to the information they need to be more successful. So that's it in a nutshell. I appreciate that. What um, Was there a story that stuck with you? Because uh, we were also interested in the why. Why would a young farmer want to do this? Uh, yeah. yeah, one of the stories that stuck with me was a young woman in Colorado actually who shared that she had never seen a tomato on a plant until she was 20 and uh, only vegetables she knew are the ones that came out of cans that her mom put on her plate and said eat your vegetables. Um, she had the good fortune of volunteering at an elementary school to help kids with math and the way they did math was to have a garden and to count how many plants produced how many pounds of, of vegetables and she thought that would be a pretty neat thing to pursue and then she got a job at a restaurant and saw all kinds of vegetables she had never seen before and that prompted her to volunteer at a farm in South Carolina and that changed her life and now she's a farm manager in Colorado so that was really neat and she said the best tool she had in the winter were acres books and she um I didn't ask her to say that, <laughs> but she volunteered that our, our books were such a great resource for her, and she has multiple copies and hands them out to her staff, and um, that was a really neat story, I thought. That, uh, well, I appreciate that. Yeah, that is an amazing story. That's one of the things I love about this project has been um, uh, everybody had a, a different reason, it seemed like, uh, a unique way of approaching agriculture. There's certainly some commonalities, though, uh, and, and it seemed like in what you've told me before is that community was a big one. Um, could you talk about that a little bit about what, what is it? And is that different than other farmers you think, or is that the same? What is that? I was, was going to say, the question really is, is twofold. One is, uh, did you find that the community aspect of what, of why they got into growing, of meeting other growers and meeting farmers, um, could you talk about that a little bit and then talk about, do you feel like, um, there's anything that, what was unique about this young farmer survey? Or what was common between these young farmers and perhaps conventional farmers or farmers who were uh, not young or not beginning at that point? The thing that um, stuck out the most to me is that the folks that I talked to were so appreciative of being heard that someone cared about what they thought and they didn't feel so alone and they felt supported by acres because we took the time to ask. And, um, that may seem like a small thing to some folks, but just giving them a platform to say, this is what's important to me, and I'm part of my community, and I want to change things in my community, and this is what I'm doing, and this is why farming is so important to me. I think that's maybe more different than Big Ag. I, I don't know many folks in Big Ag, but um, the sense of community of 
farmers that I spoke to within their community and also being part of the global community of uh, equal ag farmers is really important to them. I, I appreciate that. I go back to, and I mention this on the podcast every now and then, but what Dr. Vandana Shiva uh, talked to us last year at our conference and just said, you know, we all want to act locally, and that is always within our power to act locally. But to truly make change happen, we have to figure out how to work together as a community and act globally. And how do we get all this done? I think uh, it's a great segue to our, our next guest um, on the podcast, uh, which is Douglas DeCandia. Um, he grows food, he uses natural methods. Uh, and he really does it to help um, combat what he calls, and many people call food apartheid, uh, which is the systematic discrimination that's at the root of our food system. Uh, the farm he cares for, and he uses farm in quotation marks, and we'll ask him about that at some point, is a collective of five gardens and small farms that uh, helps young uh, people who are incarcerated, uh, helps students at a school for the deaf, and is part of a residential treatment program for youth. Uh, he supports a number of community-based food growing projects, and he's certainly one that uh, is taking food beyond just uh, growing food for commercial purposes and actually growing food to make good happen in the world. And it's, it's an uh, uh, amazing uh, goal and it's an amazing mission, and we're so happy to have Doug on today. Doug, uh, welcome to Tractor Time Podcast. This is very good to be here. Thank you. Uh, Doug, give us a little introduction to uh, uh, who you are and, and what, uh, where you're calling in from. Sure. Um, my name is Doug Candia. I live and work um, in my place of birth, where I was raised in uh, the Lower Hudson Valley of New York State. Um, I live in uh, the county of Westchester, is where I um, live and work. Um, and I grow, uh, as you said, Ryan, I grow food um, specifically for uh folks to access um, through soup kitchens, food pantries, and other um, means of uh, hunger relief uh, networks um, throughout the county. Um, so, and all of the food that we grow is free of charge, it's distributed um, without any money exchanges, um, and whatever ways that I can get it most directly to the people, um, that that's what I'm seeking to do and to also join that with education for teaching people how to grow, you know, their own food um, in uh, the natural and regenerative forms that I've been taught and I'm learning still. So, uh, uh, I, I got a few questions about that, but the first one I'll ask is, is it, how do you, why did you get into this work and how did you get to this point? Um, I, I was blessed with a Sicilian grandmother, I think was you know, the foundational thing for me. Um, growing up, I went to my grandparents, you know, my my immediate family, our cousins, aunts, uncles, we would go over to Nana and Pops every, you know, a few weeks and Nana would cook a, an amazing meal for a large family. And, you know, so ever since I've been very young, um, you know, I've kind of grown with this connection between food and family and love and, you know, just feeling how foundational that's been for me in my growth, my development, um, and also seeing how it's not so for a lot of people for so many different reasons. Um, but knowing that power and that importance of, of good food and that having that connection, um, you know, that led me to find ways that I could, uh, could do that 
um, and share that with, with others. And that eventually, you know, led to farming. Um, I didn't grow up a farmer um, growing. I uh, got into it later in my um, teens, early 20s, and um, just kind of, it took me, you know, took me all over the world, took me to Central America, across the country, different places, learning different things. And, um, you know, following this calling that I feel like really came through my ancestry, um, from Italy, from France, Scotland, um, that I've been following in my heart. And uh, for the last eight years, I've been um, working, employed by our county's food bank. And so that's how I, in a way, am able to put my time and energy and uh, intention into growing uh, food the best way that I know how. Um, and I'm still learning a lot of things, but you know, using the regenerative, natural, restorative methods um, to build soil and grow healthy food, and then share that um, that food with people, and not have it be dependent on money. Um, so today, these days, you know how, in, unfortunately, a lot of places, the healthiest food, the organic food, is limited to. Um, who's able to afford that and where that's available. Um, and so this has been a way that I have found to be able to grow that healing food, healthy food um, for folks and not have money be a determinant on if and how they can access it. That's it, uh, incredible. And I, I will say this probably a few times on this that uh, I thank you for what you're doing. Um, and I, I know a lot of our <coughs> listeners want to thank you too. Uh, the I've had some guests on previously, and, and one of them used the word food desert um, as, you know, an area where you can't get food. Another one, uh, or healthy food, another one called it a food swamp, where the only thing you can get is, 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 you know, junk food. I've had somebody say junk food doesn't exist. There's only junk or food. So could you uh, explain what food apartheid is and, uh, and go into detail about uh, what, how you know it when you see it? Yeah, um, so, again, I, I, I want to just say, like, you know, I'm still new to a lot of this, young in all of this, um, kind of the food justice, transformative justice work. Um, so, you know, what I what I say is really based on where I am at this moment, and I um, uh, just want to make that clear. I'm no professional, <laughs> but uh, speaking from where I'm at. Um, so... What I've learned, what I've been heard to, it you know that separates this kind of um, framework of food apartheid from what is often used by saying uh, food desert. Um, the uh, the language in that food desert really implies that what is seen, you know, this uh, lack of healthy food, you know, this lack of places to get healthy food, um, the overabundance of um, unhealthy food, of that kind of suppressive food, um, that that's like a natural happening. And that's through that language of food desert, desert being an ecosystem, kind of implies that this is a natural thing. And this is like the way that things are and are supposed to be and have always been and will always be. Um, But what that does not address is the you know, the real systemic issues at the heart of why it is like that. Um, if we 
if one looks at a place that's you know labeled a food desert, um, many of those places are poor working class communities, communities of color, um, places that have um, and people that have been historically and systematically um, under uh, suppression and oppression from um, the foundational kind of uh, imperial white supremacist uh, origins of, of you know our society, um, and so the food apartheid I think speaks more directly to in um, the systemic issues that are faced by the communities that some label as food deserts, and so I think it's really important because um, in this moment where we're seeing all of these. Uh, symptoms, you know, the anti-immigration, like at this moment, the mm -hmm. children being taken from their families, everything that's happening and coming to the surface now has its roots in a deeper set dis-ease in this country. Um, and a lot of that is based on racism, it's based on capitalism, based on patriarchy. And we're seeing a lot of the, sy the symptoms manifest now. Um, and it is manifesting, it has been so discreetly and under kind of cover in the food system for so long that it's been very hard to kind of talk openly about it and see how a lot of what we're seeing today are symptoms of, of um, you know, uh, institutionalized racism. And um, so food apartheid being that, uh, that discrimination based on um, one's class, one's race, and that being the reason that there is not that healthy food in these communities. There's, a, you know, um, not the places to get them. The grocery stores are not there. The farmer's markets try to be there, but they don't maybe do it in the culturally appropriate ways. Um, and so, like, that's, to me, what food apartheid shows is talking about is that this is not natural, that this is human-made, and that... Um, the system is, is, is based, you know, it, it's driven by the system. And so without, if we're just talking about food access and trying to get healthy food into communities, like that's one thing and it's very important. But if we don't at the same time address the systematic issues at the foundation, things are just going to keep happening in different ways and not actually fixing the problem. So food apartheid brings that language to show like where we, I think, need to direct. Um, action and attention and support to communities to have the self-determination to, um, you know, grow their own food, have the access to land, access to the food that is um, appropriate to that community. Um, so having it come from the grassroots, not from the top down. And um, I don't know, it's kind of a ramble, but... Uh, no, no, I appreciate um, that. That that uh, you're, you're, that was that was an excellent. I, I think the... I had a follow-up question because what came to mind was certainly we've seen, you know, I was reading some of the data, there, there's more grocery stores, uh, large-scale grocery stores now in the United States uh, than any ever time in history. What we don't have are the small corner markets and, and those that are really those accessible to those specific neighborhoods. And we've seen those large grocery stores kind of uh, push the smaller markets and those that, that used to serve those communities better. I'm not saying they did it in a way that uh, was ever equitable, but... Um, it, how much does and, and that's really the challenge that I found as I talk to folks is is if you're starting a grocery store today and you're looking at where to put it there's there's a lot of uh, new growth neighborhoods uh, uh, 
places where you know they're booming the city of Denver is booming and they're, they're wanting to expand the Whole Foods to be like four city blocks there and uh, build this huge uh, thing there but how do you get that money and how do you get that money to that grassroots level so that uh, that problem can be solved when the market forces are really working you know against that idea at some point yeah um and again, I think that's a systemic issue yeah. is the money kind of goes where the money um, can grow, right. you know, and yeah. that like the geographical kind of his- history of mm-hmm. where money is, like where the people are that can afford things and where the big stores kind of go. And it's it's really foundational in um, in in housing mm-hmm. and in what's today called um or for the last few decades has been talked about as, as redlining mm. and redlining is um, redlining is a practice that um, around in 1935 the Federal Housing Administration um, systematically kind of designed neighborhoods mm-hmm. um, and separated neighborhoods mm-hmm. um, based um, really based on race right. and class and you know, certain neighborhoods, communities were, were displaced and separated and put into lesser um, environmentally safe places, like the you know post-industrial spaces, the kind of next to the train tracks, like mm-hmm. these these spaces. And then like the the prime land was really like that was that was for folks who could afford it, and that was for folks that were you know predominantly upper class or white. Um, and so like that became so foundation because that was where then t- tax dollars went to support and then where, where then money uh, or then where like schools were supported and then like the, the community could grow and there were, there were grocery stores that could come in and healthy food and you know all of these things kind of concentrated in like the wealthier communities um, and at the same time you know, despairingly, uh, like left many communities without the access to like good housing, safe water, um, healthy food, all of these things. And, you know, we still, we, it's still practiced. It's still apparent. Um, in like, I see it, you know, if you're conscious to it, you see it everywhere. I mean, it's, it's here in Westchester, very deeply ingrained here in Westchester County. Um, so that's, I think that's, something very important to recognize is that things have been designed in order to maintain um, support wealth in the hands of certain people at the expense of keeping it away from others and so that's where like these big box stores are going into or like where the you know the Whole Foods are and Mm. these places they're not in the, the poor communities because that they can't make they're not going to make maybe the money there, right. you know, they're not going to have the support, but it's not. And so it can so easily get wrapped up in like, you know, in all this rhetoric that like the poor communities may be, you know, like it, like they're poor because they're poor, you know, and it's like, you know, work harder and you hear all of these things about poor people in poor communities. And it, it's not, it's, it's based on like, so much history that has been put into play and put into practice to kind of keep, you know, certain people, you know, suppressed and and others um, with the resources. Right. 
it's the an, an, so, an, yeah yeah the inertia of capitalism i think right it's a tough thing to to stop i think mary had a question for you mary doc how much do you think um there's a perceived value towards good food that uh, some people have and others don't and, and here in austin it seems to be um a cultural thing and an educational thing that some folks just don't like organic vegetables and they, they choose they, they choose food that we don't consider healthy but I wonder how much of that is um, it's not within their their ethnicity to, to be interested in that and then how much of that is education that they haven't read about it or known about it or don't care about it and I, I think that's a complicated at least here in, in Austin it seems to be a complicated question that um, I think there will always be people who, who don't care about it but just knowing the benefits of organic I think that's a big challenge that's a big challenge that I see here is how do how do we educate folks to see the importance of good food and, and how much of that is um, bias of well, why can't you think like me? Why can't you perceive right. me? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, there's the education, um, but I think we have to think about the history of education. And so some people have had access to about healthy food, you know, Douglas, you still there? And, you know, all of these things, you know, grew up in a, a place where, like, there was health education, nutrition, like, but many, many places, many, many kids, many, many people have never had access to that education or, you know, ability to know, even be introduced to it. So organic food coming to somebody who has been living on food stamps, you know, has not been, like, had access to, like, farmer's market, healthy food, like, ever. Like, organic food, fresh vegetables are, could be, you know, could very well be, like, something um, not as tasty, not as good, you know, intimidating to think about processing, cooking, using. Um, so I think, like, there's a lot of, a lot a lot of work that needs to be done um, in education and making like education accessible as, as well as healthy food and the land to grow that food on but I think that education also um, it, it needs to come from the grassroots and from the community and so I think a lot of the time there's a model that you know someone from the outside of a community can come in and teach the community teach the people you know about healthy food how to prepare it how to cook it all of these things and that and that's well and good you know but i think a lot of the time that becomes this um you know kind of savior complex where there's someone from the outside coming in you know and karen washington uses this phrase mm -hmm. she called parachuting like you drop right. in you do something and then you leave right right and that like it leaves that community you know, maybe that, that community got excited, those people got excited about this thing, but then if that person leaves, then the, the resource leaves, you know? So I think what we have to look at is how do we develop the, 
you know, collectively, the leadership in communities, you know, the, the youth that take to these things, you know, really supporting people in the community to be the, the future leaders and the teachers of that community um, so that it, it isn't this kind of outside-inside, you know, savior complex kind of thing, but it's actually building from the grassroots. I, I like that a lot. I'm going to take one minute to remind our listeners they're listening to Tractor Time podcast. Our guests today are Mary Batches, uh, project manager with Acres USA, who just conducted a young farmer survey with us, and Doug DeCandia, one of those young farmers who's really doing a lot of good with uh, uh, with good growing techniques um, to help communities. Uh, I'm going to get right back to what Doug uh, was just talking about and ask a follow-up question. Um, talk, how do you, I guess, and really go get down to the work you're doing in New York. Uh, you just outlined a lot of challenges for people to uh, to be able to help, quite honestly, or that uh, uh, even perceptions can go a long way with um, good intentions, uh, to hurt good intentions, I should say. Uh, how have you gotten around those with the communities you're working in and, and, and talk about kind of where you guys started and where you are today? Sure, yeah. Um, so about uh, eight years ago, um, I, uh, I was working on a small organic vegetable farm in um, Lower Hudson Valley, and I just kind of, you know, I was growing food, taking it to farmers markets, restaurants, um, and I just, one day, I'll remember it forever, it was just like, I, you know, there's so many more people that that need this food that I'm putting my, my heart and energy and love, and I know how many, so many other people are farming in good ways and in regenerative ways that, like, like this food should be for all people, you know, and not just people that have money that can come to a farmer's market or to a nice restaurant and eat this. And so I really, you know, that was very powerful for me. And, and I just, I sought different ways, you know, reached out to every social justice organization that I could connect with um, to find somebody to pay me, you know, a salary, something that I could grow food for free for people. Um, and the food bank did that. And, um, they, they were, it was serendipitous, they were hiring somebody at that, at that time to kind of expand this small growing program that they were sponsoring. So what that looked like at that time was uh, about three or four gardens um, around the county that the food bank was had like volunteers or part-time staff working at, um, really centered around like growing, you know, a, a smaller gardens, vegetables, fruits for, for the kids. Um, and uh, different folks to participate in the growing of and learning of. And then um, they received a, a, a grant to hire somebody full time to expand the program um, and to broaden kind of the scope of the education and the food production. So um, that's when I started. And starting, I inherited um, a, uh, one of the gardens at uh, the Westchester County Jail um, one at a juvenile detention, um, one at a school in Yonkers, which uh, is a city in the south part of Westchester that borders New York City. And then I started uh, one at the New York School for the Deaf and one at um, Westchester Land Trust. And so I uh, expanded the ones that I inherited um, and built some of the new ones. And so collectively, those five are about Three and a half acres of land um, that I caretake for, you know, and that's 
the, the, the farm in quotations. <laughs> That's what that is, um, is the, the five collective spaces that make up my farm, uh, the, the farm. And, uh, and then in um, conjunction to those, there are a, a, a number of smaller gardens in, um, in communities, in uh, communities that have been um, uh, uh, kind of impacted by, by food apartheid. Um, and I, I'm asked to come into these places to provide a resource in helping to build a garden, support the kind of becoming and blossoming of a garden, um, and ultimately for that garden to be taken ownership of by the community. And so I am able to, um, you know, leverage some monies and resources from the parent organization, the food bank, um, for tools, materials, compost, different things to um, help with the visioning and help with the, the building of more grassroots-based uh, food, food production in communities that are um, in need of and, and want that. Um, so there's kind of two sides. There's the, the farm, which is primarily around food production and a vocational training, and then the um, smaller gardens that are organized around building food sovereignty and supporting um, community self-determination. How much, uh, that's a, that's a, and how, how long did it take you to get to this point? Uh, so, uh, seven years. Um, I've been working, this is my seventh season doing this, uh, and it, it's getting easier. <laughs> Honestly, there's, uh, you know, employing a lot of these methods, um, the cover cropping, the remineralization, the, you know, inoculant, biological inoculants, you know, all of these things that, um, you know, I've, I've learned so much from acres about and, you know, the resources um, of people and um, books and everything. Um, but putting those into practice, like, you know, I, I don't have to do a lot of weeding anymore. You know, I don't have to do a lot of, you know, watering. You know, these things that, like, a lot of, I think, from my experience on working on organic farms was, like, the majority of the labor was, you know, like, the weeding, the watering, the, you know, the pest issues, like, fixing problems, you know, fixing the symptoms. Um, but, like, these practices, uh, I've really seen that, like, they they get to the root and to the healing of, of the soil, of the earth, um, which is then the feeder and the protector and the, and the support of the plants. And so, you know, I've, I've in a way had to focus like really into how to build a more um, self-sustaining regenerative system in these farms so that I can kind of bounce around and, and, and do more. Um, so it's come out of necessity and I've seen just like how over the course of seven years just how much like the soils that were really degraded and depleted um, have been coming back to life and how that's also reflecting in healthier plants and healthier food and less work on my part. Um, and so those are the things also that I'm help, um, trying to share into and with um, communities and folks that I'm working with um, are these are these practices and and it takes time you know because I think it's a, a, a different framework mm -hmm. you know that that I that I 
personally like grew up with was like you know you till the ground you turn it you water you spray water on it you leave the soil bare you know and it mm. it dries out it bakes and then like the plants get sick and you you try and fix fix the the right. issues that they have you know and maybe you'll get some fruit and vegetables <laughs> from it but like and and it, it doesn't have to be that way you know and it's taken a lot of of for me like unlearning a lot of these things that i just like grew up seeing or like we're taught in like the conventional organic kind of way um and you know listening like reading and like learning a lot of history too that like just how like these practices are the ways that people have been growing food for as long as people have been growing food you know <laughs> it's like it's resurging right now in the last few decades because i think we're collectively seeing like what has been done by the antithesis, the, the conventional approach to growing food and how that has, you know, mirrored and reflected like in the loss of life and the loss of vitality of our food and thus the vitality of people and how we are able to be most human and most connected to each other. So I see like these, this practice being of healing the land, being also healing people and healing our broken relationships with each other and with ourselves and with Mother Earth. Um, and it's all, it's healing. It's healing what, you know, what has been done and hopefully working towards building a more equitable and healthy, vital um, food system and human system, um, you know, here on, on planet Earth. Sure. No, I that really is connecting the dots between the work you're doing locally and how it affects, uh, which, which took the next question right out of my mouth. So I appreciate that. Uh, the related to that though, what, what, if you were going to do this all over again, what's one thing that if I guess, or give somebody else advice, who's just getting started, what's, what's the big piece of advice you would give them or what's been your biggest learning, uh, uh, moment through this process? Um, one of the biggest learning, um, well, for me, for me, like the big thing was to know that maybe it could look different than like being a farmer doesn't have to look a certain way. Yeah. And it doesn't have to mean that necessarily maybe we make money off the direct um, uh, exchange of money for food. You know, maybe it can look a different way. And I, I would I would suggest that people that are wanting to that feel it in their heart that like they want to grow and, and share healthy food with with other people and and heal and heal the land to think of ways that like we can creatively collectively go about doing that um i think farming should be seen as a public service you know and that those that are farming in restorative ways maybe should also be compensated in other ways for providing this human necessity, which is healthy and healing food. You know, today we see the commodities and all of these things going to the producers that are growing food that is actually killing people mm. and killing the land. Um, what if that went to the people that were building, like, building soil and growing food for community, you know? Like, I think there's a lot of things that can happen to maybe push that conversation to seeing farming um, in the light that of a public service and a human need. Um, 
so I, I think, you know, I'm always trying to hold that framework personally of, of how other ways to make a living, you know, we live in a capitalist economy and we have to unfortunately maybe make money to do this, but like, how have people done this forever? How have communities worked in supporting the growers, supporting the producers, you know? And so I think there's different ways that we can, we can create a different kind of economy um, for, for ourselves in our, in our home places. Um, so for what I would recommend, I guess, um, is to really work with the people, you know, be involved in um, community uh, movements to build food sovereignty, um, finding allyship where that allyship is needed and wanted, um, supporting it from the grassroots, because it's the communities that know, it's the people that know what is needed. You know, it's not, it can't come from the outside. Support can come from the outside, listening can come from the outside, maybe leveraging resources can come from the outside, but it should always be directed by what is needed by the community. So before somebody assumes what a community needs, what a person needs, I think we have to listen to what is being asked for um, and then respond to those asks and finding a collective way to move about building what we need for um, to build a healthier, more equitable and just world and food system. Um, it's going to take a lot of listening and a lot of healing, but um, I think there's a lot of good people, good-hearted people um, that need the access to land, need access to resources, um, and you know, to do it collectively, uh, to do that. So. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I, uh, when you you mentioned something, I'm not going to get this exactly right, but you made, you said something about how farmers have to think differently and do things differently earlier, and then got both Mary and I were sitting here nodding our heads, going going because that was one of the things we really uh, were hoping um, we thought we discovered through this project is. Uh, some people who think differently about the world and who see differently the the and it sounds like what you're talking about is really starting with the problem and not the solution, uh, which is going into a community and really understanding that problem before you ever go into that solution or in that community and ever say, here have this whether it's a farmer's market or a grocery store or something maybe that that trust level and that listening level is perhaps what we're we're is the big piece we're missing right now that we have the techniques we have the methods we've got the the, the markets, we've got all these models, but it's really that trust factor that we're missing at that point. Do I have that about right? And maybe the initiative to actually get in there and do this as well. Do I have that about right? I, I think so. I mean, building, building trust is, is, the, is the healing work, I think, that has to happen between people. You know, I think, I know this from my own life, how I've grown up in a segregated kind of mm. worldview. You know, like, mm. I have not grown up near or with like a proximity to or connection with people of color, you know, and that's been kind of a a thing that has just been in my heart for my whole life because I know how that has led so many people to build animosity and build hate or build just ignorance for other people and it and it really being founded on this separation. And so trust has to happen it happens through building relationships and it help and it happens through building rebuilding these connections that have been kind of implemented into our, into, you know, the culture and society. So, I mean, trust is that, and that looks and is, has to happen in so many different ways. And, 
you know, one thing that I think about a lot too is that a lot of the the common rhetoric, like language in the good food movement these days, is um, you know, it's very <laughs> and um, it's it's very whitewashed. You know, <laughs> sure. a lot of the time, it, it's sure. like the the professionals, the ones that are like at the conferences, like everywhere. You know, it's it's a predominantly like white male um, like network. And, and I think like that is something that is a symptom of a deeper set kind of issue. Um, and don't get me wrong, I have learned so much from so many different people, but I think part of building that trust is also building and bringing in voices that, um, and people that, that are not that, are not the, the white, the male, mm-hmm. you know, um, big farmers, but also bringing in and, and like having people of color, you know, um, indigenous farmers speaking at these conferences, writing, you know, acres holding their books, you know, because like the regenerative farming movement has, it's, it's resurged in the last few decades, but it has been around, you know, a lot of the practices that people are employing are indigenous practices and like, you know, the regenerative farming model, like George Washington Carver, was, you know, one of the foundational pioneers of regenerative agriculture, you know, a black farmer in the early 1900s. But he, you know, people know him for, for peanuts and different things, but not, I mean, and he and he did so much, but he did so much in so many different ways that I think, you know, it's, it's partly bringing in this history so that we can, this history of how, you know, black, indigenous, Latinx, how, how everybody has participated in what the food movement is today and the history of it so that the voices can be heard and that more people can see that this is not just, this movement is not just like a white thing, a white person thing, but it's like a human thing. It's for everybody. And so everybody needs to be in this conversation because everybody has something to give and to share in a story that is going to evolve what we're doing today into a really more beautiful beautiful thing that's going to change the world i uh i appreciate that that uh that'd be a heck of a point to end on if i didn't have one more couple more questions for you quite honestly but uh um, i really like that it's uh um and i kind of want you to bring this home for us uh this hour is is you know a lot of us uh a lot of people aren't involved day-to-day in farming aren't involved day-to-day in growing food um what can they do uh how do they, how can, you know, is there a small change that everybody could make in their lives that would help not to add to this gap inequality uh, with access to food? Or, or what could we do to really, if somebody came up to me and called me and they listened to this podcast and they say, what can I do? Uh, what advice would you have for me? Uh, I'm going to end on that question. That is a hard. I'll, get, I'll, give, hard you, I'll give you an easier no. one to end on, but yeah. No, 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 that's fine. This is good. All right. Um, it is something that I think about a lot, you know, and um, I think one of the big things is that it's very hard to see these um, glo- <coughs> excuse me, global, national issues, historic issues, like, as things that are manifesting right in our own, like, everyday lives. Mm-hmm. And so every time when somebody goes to the grocery store, I think people need to ask that question the the everyday consumer person that goes to these places needs to ask that question of like where is 
this food coming from? You know, and I think that that sincere question can take us so deep because even if we're buying organic food, you know, um, these days, like that food, most of that food is not coming from a place that respects the human being or respects the animal or respects the land. It might be organic, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not exploiting people, animals, or land. And I think when the, the everyday person that goes to a grocery store, I think really, I don't, I mean, this is something that I think about is like, how can I better know where what I am consuming is coming from? Because if I don't know, then I don't know how this food was produced. And the globalization and the mass market, like it necessitates people being pushed to limits that are, and being paid minimum wages and living in and working in conditions that are not, you know, suited for, for, for life, for people. Um, that, that, that is happening on so many different farms, but it's happening away from people. So we don't see it, you know, and, it, and that just allows things to be perpetuated. Um, so I think one thing is, is like that, that question, like really being sincere, looking at the ingredients list on the packages that you're buying and saying, I don't know what this is or where this comes from. You know, is there something else that I can do or buy or maybe find, grow, you know, that like can take the place of this? You know, so I think it's partially getting to know the farmers, but like that has to also look like how do we get more people onto land and that has to look like how do we get more land opened and into the public trust, yeah. into the commons again, where people can steward this land and it's not held in private ownership. Right. Um, so I think there's a lot of different things, but like really personalizing it and for, for the everyday um, is something that I try and practice, but I think is also a powerful practice for people to, to put into their, their everyday uh, lives and work. I I, res I really appreciate that, uh, um, Dr. Shiva. I mentioned her before, but she has a book that we published this year called "Food Farming and Health," and that's really what she's asking for. And that is, is for, for food to be an intellectual pursuit again, is to get back to that day that when we put something in our bodies, that that's actually an intellectual decision we're making. And is it a? And I know I don't feel as smart when I have to cheat and go through fast food and grab a burger. Because uh, I'm flying to a meeting, I know that that is I'm not making a smart decision when I do that, uh, and so I, I I like that approach. That it really is an individual decision to figure out how to apply it. Uh, before I ramble too much on though, I wanted to allow Mary to uh, uh, get in another question or two if she had for you, uh, Doug. Mary, do you have any other questions for Doug, or things you want to add to the conversation? Um, I don't have any questions. I think, um, Doug, I want to frame your. Your, what you said a few minutes ago, that being a farmer doesn't have to look a certain way. Yeah. That is so, that's so amazingly true, and that's what I've gotten out of talking to farmers such as yourself and reading some of the responses, is that a lot of the beginner farmers are saying, I know farming used to look a certain way, and that's how my parents would define it, um, but it doesn't have to look a certain way. It's got to look my way, and what makes sense for me, and how I can contribute, how I think I wrote that down as the most important thing I've heard <laughs> today mm -hmm. is, is what you said, that being a farmer doesn't have to look a certain way. I think that's really key. I, I, I thank you for wrapping that up. That's, that's ideal. Uh, 
Doug, is there anything else we missed or anything uh, you'd like to encourage our audience to, uh, to do or to take away from this conversation? Oh, gosh. Um, I just follow, <laughs> be cliche, but follow, follow your heart, you know? I think, like, we, we each hold this gem inside of us, this knowledge of generations past of, you know, our histories, our ancestors, like, inside of us. And, you know, we have that guide, we have that knowledge and that wisdom with us always. Um, and to, to understand, too, that, like, food healing food, healthy food with that life in it is the support for us to like, to become our truest selves. I think, you know, when we feel that, when we know that, that food is life and food is our connection to life and to Mother Earth, that we're going to make every necessary means to make that healthy food available to all people and the means for growing that food available to all people. Um, once we really feel it in ourselves that this is what what we all need. Uh, thank you for that, Doug. Uh, Doug and Mary, hang on here while I wrap up the show, uh, and I'll wrap this up, and then we'll uh, we'll have our uh, quick conversation after we're all done today. So, I uh, just want to thank uh, Mary Batches uh, again for being on the program today, for leading us through this survey and helping us really understand uh, and find some some real heroes out there uh, growing, including our other guest today, Doug DeCandia who in New York is uh, really working at, a, at the grassroots level to fight and uh, overcome food apartheid in his area, in his community. Uh, his advice today is listen, uh, get involved. Uh, don't think you have the solution, but if you listen hard enough, that solution will probably come to you and will be presented to you. And, I, uh, uh, and that we all have um, uh, it in us to do better. And I think that's the big takeaway too, is that even those of us who think we're we're doing it all can always look at us and go we can do one thing better uh, throughout the day so I'm just so proud to have uh, to be able to have this conversation today so proud to have uh, Doug uh, in our community at Acres too uh, it just means a lot and uh, appreciate the work you're doing Doug uh, thank you for being on the program today thank you both so much and thanks you to our listeners and this is another uh, episode of Tractor Time Podcast thank you for listening